Our reading from, for today comes from Psalm 118, verses 19 through 29, and then John chapter 12, 12 through 26. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, it's, it, is, it is so enjoyable to be here on Palm Sunday. Um, I, I'm just so happy to, to be worshiping amongst people who love the Lord. And, and one of the things that we see in this passage in Jesus's entry into Jerusalem, which is known as the triumphal entry, this is an uh, event that takes place uh, at the beginning of Passion Week, so to speak. This day is the end of Lent. This is the sixth week of Lent, and we have come through this season, and we have arrived at Palm Sunday, and we are hearing a 
about Jesus Christ entering into the city. And so the, the call goes out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as the people are about to, uh, to welcome Jesus. And so in this passage, we see a number of things happening that are uh, extremely important to recognize and to take note of. And they, they touch on some of the things that we've uh, experienced or talked about before, namely that the Old Testament is vitally important for you to understand what's going on. If you don't know the Old Testament and you hear Jesus rides on a colt and shows up and enters into the city and people shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you just think it was a cool party or that Jerusalem was having a revival that week. You don't understand the significance of what is taking place, why it's so easy to, uh, when you when you celebrate this day, have mixed emotions. It's a day of glory. It's a day of worship. It's a day of adoration where where we, the people of God, are welcoming the king. And yet, it's a day of somber sadness because this day is what Jesus, uh, this day turns Jesus to a direction uh, like a flint on an arrow. It is pointed somewhere, and that somewhere is the cross. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at the prophecy of the Old Covenant Scriptures that is mentioned here, that is fulfilled here. We're going to look at the jealousy and the murder that is obviously in the hearts of the Pharisees as they react to what's going on. We're going to look at some of the details of the actual celebration where they shout Hosanna, uh, what what takes place after uh, his entry. And then finally, we're going to look at the sowing and reaping that Jesus talks about. Uh I love this illustration. I, I actually thought about, but didn't decided not to, to bring in some of the starter plants that I have in my house. A few people have been over for dinner since they've been uh, up, and so you've seen it. But uh, this is a, simultaneously a message of death and yet a message of life. And that's what we see take place in this passage. So the song that we sang today at the beginning of service, if you remember, uh, it, it's a medley of the vision that Isaiah has at the beginning of Isaiah chapter six, he says in the year of, I think it's first year of King Uzziah, uh, I saw the Lord high and lifted up seated on the throne and the train of his robe fills the temple. If you remember the song we sang, that was the first verse. And then the Psalm uh, that was contained within it was Psalm 24 and Psalm 118. And it says, lift up your heads, open the doors that the king of glory may come in. That is not just poetry. That's not just good songwriting. It's great songwriting. But it's not just great songwriting. It is specific mention. It's specific use of Old Testament scriptures so that we would understand what is being done in this passage today, what, what takes place on Palm Sunday. It's the, that song contains within it the remembering of the call to the doors to be open. These are not literal doors, although they are somewhat, in a sense, literal on the day of Palm Sunday, but they're the doors of Israel to, op- to be open to the things of God. It's not just that the doors of Jerusalem would be open, although that was a physical, literal manifestation of this prophecy. It's also that the people of Israel would receive her king. And so this is uh, this is what we are celebrating and singing today. 
The first psalm, these two psalms that are, are used and that are referenced by the gospel writer John here, uh, these two psalms emphasize two different aspects which we have to have if we are to understand this Jesus who comes in as the King of Glory. The first one is that this psalm testifies of the identity of the one who comes through the gates. And we're going to see that one being described by the psalm writer as the King of Glory. And then the description and call goes out, who is this King of Glory? The Lord of hosts. Psalm 24, 7 through 10, this wasn't in our reading. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now, this is talking about the gates of the city of Jerusalem as Jesus is coming in through his triumphal entry. But again, as I said earlier, it's also referring to an openness in Israel that she would be willing to accept the things of God rather than rebelling against Yahweh and turning aside after other gods. Verse 8, who is this King of glory? This is a call and response. I love call and response in songs. Some people think it's hokey. Some people think it's from the 80s or 90s, you know, vineyard movement. But I love call and response in the Psalms and in our, in our worship because it's in the scriptures. The call goes forth, open up the doors that the king of glory may come in. And then there's this other voice who comes in and says, who is this king of glory? And that, that's a call. And here's the response. The king of glory is the Lord strong and mighty the Lord mighty in battle. Now look closely, L-O-R-D is capital letters. What this means in the scripture is this is the tetragrammaton, the four letters which name the name of Yahweh is translated in the English to L-O-R-D. That's what it means when you read in your scriptures. If you've ever seen uh, something like Young's literal translation and then compared it with uh, something like a, you know, a, a more modern version like ESV, NIV, you're like, why is... Why do we see Adonai and Lord, and why do we see Yahweh and Lord, and why do we see Jehovah and Yahweh? Because the, the modern translations are attempting to show you uh, the idea of Yahweh, but in some language that you understand. But I want you to understand clearly, if you open up to the first page of any Bible, especially the ESV, it'll describe what it does when it's using L-O-R-D capital. That is Yahweh. And so the, the importance of this is that there is this king of Israel who is Yahweh himself. Look at it closely. The king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, Yahweh, is the king. And so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he is identifying as being the fulfillment of this prophecy that the king of glory, who is Yahweh himself, is coming in and he's going to be king. And again, this call and response, it repeats. Verse 7 is exactly the same as verse 9. It repeats, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Just in case you missed it, the Lord of hosts. Mighty in battle, mighty as a warrior, he is the king of glory. This is amazing, an amazing use of this psalm by the gospel writer John. He is saying that Jesus, by coming in, in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, is testifying that he is Yahweh in the flesh, God incarnate. And the second psalm, which is referenced in the song that we sang this morning and was our reading today, it identifies the Christ as the Messiah who is a rejected cornerstone, the, the builders, speaking of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Israel, reject. And so this one who is coming in, 
He is the Messiah, the cornerstone who has been rejected. He's the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, this was our reading today, 22 through 23 and verse 26. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is who's doing? Yahweh's doing. The Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. And then verse 26 is what we were singing. That was the hook, the tag on the end of the song. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so the the understanding is that this verse, which the people of Israel sing as Jesus is coming into the city, they're identifying and recognizing Jesus is the Messiah that Psalm 118 spoke of. They, They are acknowledging him as their king. The apostolic faith concerning Jesus Christ, that is, the right understanding of who Jesus is, not as some historical figure, not as some prophet or wise man, not as some person who has religious significance, but the apostolic faith concerning who Jesus Christ is has two primary pillars, that he is God in the flesh and that he is the anointed king, the Messiah, to save his people Israel. And without those two pillars... You do not have the apostolic faith. If you only understand Jesus as someone who came to rescue some people, but but not being God, you do not understand Jesus Christ at all. And if you only understand Jesus Christ as deity and dying in some mysterious way, completely irrelevant to saving his people, then you don't understand the work of the atonement and you miss the message of the cross. Those two pillars are necessary pillars. And so that is the right and proper understanding of the weight of what John the gospel writer is doing when he is recording this narrative uh, about the historical events that took place and crafting it in such a way as to interpret these two psalms and embed them. But there's another psalm or there's another prophet that is also embedded within this passage. Zechariah 9 9, it says, Take comfort, daughter of, Z- of Zion. Uh, for your king is coming to you on a donkey. That's the quote that is taking place in verse 15. Fear not. And so this is Christ's true intention. When he comes in, he knows the scriptures. He knows his mission. And he comes into Jerusalem receiving praise, intending to make the statement, both that he is God in the flesh and that he is the Messiah come to save Israel. We even see the spirit in, later on in this passage reminding the disciples, that this is the right understanding, because it says in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So this understanding is that Jesus Christ is the King of glory who's coming into Israel. He's coming into the city of God. He's receiving praise. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh in the flesh. And at the same time, he is the the stone which the builders reject. And the stone which the builders reject is something that is done to him. Many people, when they are attempting to dismiss the Christian faith, they say, well, Jesus was just uh, really wise in the scriptures, and so he intended to manifest these prophecies. He intended to fulfill them literally. But I want to say that every uh, prophecy which Jesus did himself— has at least one or two more prophecies which were done to him. That is the place where he was born, his identity growing up as a child, in what city he lived in, that was all out of his control. Likewise, the rejection of the cornerstone is not something the cornerstone did. And so this understanding of what happens to this cornerstone is 
this idea here at the end of verse 16, what had been done to him. Jesus did not just jump on a donkey and ride into the city and pay some people to praise him as they entered. He fulfilled a prophecy from Zechariah 9 and Psalm 28 and 118. 24 and 118, sorry. And so this is what Jesus Christ is doing. Make no mistake, Jesus fully intends to do this. This isn't an accident. And at the same time, it's not Jesus doing it in a wrong way. He is intending to demonstrate and show that he is both Yahweh and the Messiah. Of course, we know that right after anything miraculous takes place in the Gospels, what happens? The Pharisees. Hopefully you're sick of me saying this, but right after a miracle, what happens? The Pharisees. The Pharisees show up, they're provoked, and look at what happens, uh, look at what they say, look at what is, what is manufactured or brought to light in their hearts. It says, verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Now look at what is going on. There's these group of law keepers, so to speak, not truly keeping the law, but they're, they're these groups of, of people who understand the scriptures and they study and memorize and interpret and meditate on them in such a way as to gain information, but we know rightly that their hearts are far from God. And so they understand what's taking place. It probably wasn't lost to many of the Pharisees, although it was obscure to some of the disciples what was going on when Jesus came into Jerusalem that day. They understood probably a little bit about what was taking place. And you see them holding concert, they're consulting together, and they're all kind of licking their wounds. They're saying, you see that you are gaining nothing, or you can interpret it to, to basically mean like, our side's losing. This is like in Karate Kid, when the Cobra Kai get all together and they lick their wounds and they conspire against Ralph Macchio. Is that his name, Ralph Macchio? I love that movie. And you see it. This is what's going on. They make this plot to take him down. And here is really when this plot to kill the Christ is really accelerated. It's been brewing. It's like water coming to a boil. It's getting hot. And then finally, after one minute, then it's boiling. It's rolling hot. And so these, these Pharisees are, are basically at, of the opinion that they're losing control on the people. The second half of the verse, the whole world has gone looking for him. This is why it's so important to understand that the, when, when the Hebrew-minded speakers say the world, they mean the, the nation. And so you see this over and over again. Although the whole world wasn't present in Jerusalem. What they mean by the whole world is all the people. All the people are going after him, and they are, they're offended at this. They're losing control over the people. And you see the murder and the, the malicious thought in their heart. They're, they're consulting together, and they are attempting to remedy the situation. They're saying, look, we've got a problem. We have to do something about it. They see the crowds that depart after the Christ, and they grumble amongst themselves. And this is the final straw, proverbially, uh, pr proverbially, that breaks the camel's back. Have you ever heard that saying? You, you load a camel full of straw, and it can take a ton of weight. And then finally, there's this one thing, and then it's too much weight. This is what happens. And the Pharisees snap, and they launch the plan to murder him. This is, the, this is a demonstration that these Pharisees are not truly keepers of the law. 
It's not as if the gospel writers are painting the Pharisees in a bad light. It's true. They loved the people and they loved the praise of people rather than following God. They wished to be seen as righteous. They wished to be leaders. They wished to be respected and receive praise from others. And yet their hearts are far, far away from God. Or else they would recognize what God was doing and also shout Hosanna. But they're unwilling to do so. Christ absolutely knew this would happen, and he intentionally provokes them to, he pushes them over the edge, so to speak. And if you're, if you're uncomfortable with that idea, Jesus would never do something like that, you say. Go take a look, Matthew 23, verse 32, not 322 as the slide says, verse 32, there are not 322 verses in Matthew 23. That verse In that verse, Jesus says to the Pharisees, fill up what is lacking in the measure of your iniquities. And what he's clearly stating is kill me. Because he says that all the blood from Abel, who Cain killed, he's calling the Pharisees sons of Cain rather than sons of Abraham, all the blood from Abel to Zechariah, and that's not an A to Z joke, although it's convenient, All the blood from Abel to Zechariah, that is the first prophet who died, to the last prophet the Pharisees will kill, will come upon this generation. And he says, one thing's lacking. You haven't killed me yet. And you haven't killed my disciples, the apostles. And so Jesus provokes them to jealousy. And here we see an amazing turning point in the book of John. Right after this, the Gentiles come, these Greek people come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and they want, to, they want an audience with him. They want to speak with him. They're seeking after him. All of the prophets who spoke that all the nations will come and worship him, all the nations will stream to the mountain of the house of the Lord, all of these prophecies are in view. And here, these Greeks who show up and come to seek Jesus, notice what he says. Jesus doesn't turn around and say, hey, some Greeks, they're, they're influential in this culture. Let's talk with them. No, he makes, he makes an observation as to what happens when the Greeks show up. Look at what Jesus, I mean, if, if it wasn't a, a prophetic uh, understanding, then it would seem like Jesus was just like smoking pot or something. I mean, if somebody said, hey, John, there's a bunch of people here to see you, and then you, you, know, you turn over and say, oh, well, now it's time to leave, you, you would think that person was crazy. But that's basically what Jesus says. The reason he says that is he understands it's now time for the Son of Man to be lifted up because the peoples are being drawn to him. Verse 23, the hour for, has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus doesn't give a concert to the, the Greeks. He doesn't, he doesn't turn and give an audience to them. He rather turns and says, now it's time to go to the cross because he's drawing all people to himself. And so this point in the book of John is the turning point. If you look literally speaking, uh, or literarily speaking, so to speak, uh, at the book of John, this is a focal point. Uh, in terms of the economy of the language of, of John's gospel and the way that he writes and, and the way that the story progresses, this is the center point of the book. Now, it may not be the exact center if you turn to the middle page of John. It, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this is the hinge upon which the gospel of John turns. And so these Greeks coming give us a sign of what Jesus is all about, what he's been doing through this entire gospel. He's been calling more than just Israel. He's been calling the nations. 
Jesus then turns and says, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Though John has a gospel that's full of miracles and wonders, signs and wonders, amazing things that happen, we've talked about them many times. You're familiar with them, I'm sure. People being uh, who were born blind being healed, people who were uh, dead raised, people who were estranged from their husband and strangers to the law, restored to the law. This is an amazing gospel full of amazing things, and yet this is when John begins to turn on the language of glory. The coming suffering and passion is the glorification of Christ. Now, I do not mean that in the sense of a large G, capital G, glorification. Jesus Christ was surely glorified after he ascended, which is covered in uh, in in our time in ascension. We talked about it last year. We're going to talk about it again this year. Jesus was glorified. He was truly anointed with the Spirit after he rose and ascended. But this is not talking about that. When Jesus says, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified, he has something else entirely in view. What Christ teaches about this cost of obedience is what is in view. Jesus Christ declares his bloody death on a cross as the glorification of Christ. It's not in the reading today, but it it is uh, continuing on in the same chapter if you have your Bibles. You can, you can look. Verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's Jesus Christ's call to God, that God would be glorified. And then, the continuing in verse 28, Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And what that means is, is God has already glorified the Son when he said, this is my beloved Son, the voice which came from heaven. It testified to who Jesus Christ was as the Son of God. And when Jesus prays to the Father and says, glorify your name, he is, he is uh, principally speaking, Father, orchestrate events such that I would do your will. And the will of God for the Son is to go to the cross. And And the language that's used here, what Jesus prays and and how John records this, is glorification. It's not principally that he was glorified after the resurrection, although the resurrection is glorious. But this is the mystery of our faith, that Jesus Christ going to a terrible death through a horrible instrument of execution, that is glory. If that isn't the most... uh, Amazing picture. I don't know what it is. This is amazing to me. What Christ teaches in this passage about the cost of obedience to God concerns not just his death and his life, but also the way that we follow him as disciples. It, it primarily speaks about the cross, but it has implications for us. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. I have, as I referred to earlier, in my kitchen, over 115 containers, small little cups, small little trays. Uh, You might think I was a crazy person keeping all those things around. I'm sure Edwin thinks it's crazy. It's a whole whole folding table full of little tiny seed pots. 
in which I have put a tiny seed, and that seed has changed. It has died, and it has been reborn into this new plant. Now, let me tell you, you cannot eat the bean and plant the bean, right? Simple economics. You only have the bean. You can't eat that bean if you plant that bean. The bean has to go into the ground or else it will never produce any fruit. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here, is you can't love your life and keep it. If you want to keep your life, you have to lose it, right? This is exactly what we see every year when various gardeners do these crazy things in their homes. This is what Jesus is testifying. He says, I am a grain of wheat. I am called to produce fruit. And therefore, I must go into the ground, so to speak. Jesus says, if anyone loves his life, verse 25, and whoever, uh, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That is folly to the natural mind, is it? Right? Does that make any sense, plainly speaking? No, it doesn't. What Jesus Christ says concerning following God is completely nonsensical to the natural mind. To the mind which is not gifted by the Holy Spirit, you cannot understand what Jesus says, whoever hates his life keeps it. That's completely not true in your natural experience, right? If you have a nice thing, you have to do what? You have to take care of it. You have to preserve it. I have lots of special pieces of metal. One of them is a very uh, special and expensive instrument. And it's starting to rust in different places. Why? Because I've neglected it in my basement, in a bad humidity environment, and it's rusting away. In your natural experience, everything that you have taken care of has ingrained in you an understanding that if you want to keep something, you have to maintain it. You have to take care of it. You have to watch over it. But Jesus is saying, if you want to keep your life, you have to hate it. You have to lose it. This is completely nonsensical to the natural mind. But what Jesus is saying is true. If you love your life to the point where you are unwilling to give it up for the sake of following Jesus Christ, then you are not going to keep your life. Because the ability to give up your life attends with choosing to follow him. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Isn't that a wonderful expression? There, well, there where I am, will my servant be also. Those are some of my favorite words. And where we want to be is, of course, with the Lord. And so what we're called to do is to lay down our lives. Now, that may not mean that you actually are killed as a martyr for the gospel. That would be noble and that would be glorious. Although fearful, it would be a wonderful thing to take place because we know that the same is true when a grain falls, a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it bears much fruit. But even if you do not die for the faith, you have to live for the faith. What it means to follow Christ now is often much more harder to distinguish than if you were presented with a martyrdom opportunity. If you were presented with a, a call to either renounce the faith or to give your life for the faith, it would be very clear what options you have. But what you forget is you're asked that every day. 
And so often you are unaware to the call that to follow Christ truly means to lay down your everything. But again, this logic, though we don't understand, we do trust. It makes total sense, aided by the Holy Spirit, that if you give everything, you get everything. You get, you get Christ, who is the only precious one. This is the mystery and paradox of our faith. Christ is, is uh, showing a paradox. And what he shows us in this passage, both with his words and then with his actions, is truly glorious. The Son of God in flesh, dying in the place of sinners. That doesn't look glorious, but the way that God's economy works, that is glorious. That is the most glorious thing to have ever happened. Jesus calls us to follow him, and it is not our, in our ability that we answer this call. It is absolutely not within your power to follow Jesus Christ and to hear him say, lay down your life, and then of your own will, of your own power, decide, that's right, I should. I should follow after Christ. You must be gifted by the Holy Spirit to do this. But God says that those who would call upon the name of the Lord may be saved. And that is what we do. That's what we do in the midst of our situations, in the midst of terrible situations, in the midst of pleasant situations, we have to call upon the name of the Lord. It is not within your power alone to lay down your life, but it is because we follow one who did lay down his life and he has a lot of skill in doing it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask you, Lord, that you would give us a wonderful vision of you, that you would aid us with your Holy Spirit, that you would convince us of the rightness of your estimation of life, that it really is glorious to lay down your life, that it really is truly glorious to die. Lord, we ask that you would deliver us from love of the world, that we would no longer be enslaved and captive to fleeting desires and things which are trivial, but Lord, that you would, sh you would show us the importance of choosing you moment by moment. God, I pray that as we go into Holy Week, that you would allow us to behold these events with faith, that we would be present in the Spirit, really seeing what you did, truly appreciating and truly knowing why you, you gave it all for us. Lord, we thank you. This is a grace beyond any of our imaginations or even understanding. Lord, we pray that we would see you coming into the, the city in your triumphal entry, knowing full well you are walking towards your death. But Lord, thank you for coming nonetheless. Lord, we ask you that we would be encouraged from heaven with grace to follow in your footsteps. In Jesus' mighty name.